Can you hear me? <laughs> uh, first of all, I want to thank the people who are responsible for me being here this afternoon. And it's good to be here with uh, friends of mine, these two distinguished gentlemen, uh, one that spoke previously and the one that's going to speak later. Uh, I've known them for some time. And they've known me for some time. Uh, I usually give my sobriety date when I get up to a podium, but I'm not going to give it today because Tom will probably give it. Uh, he always gives his sobriety date, and then he says, that's five months before Dave got here. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, I've often said, you know, I'm one of these people. That, now, Wade spoke to you. He's got a lot of sobriety. I've been sober for a while, and so is Tom. And a lot of you people probably look at us as old-timers. Well, I don't consider myself an old-timer. I'm sure they don't either. The old-timers that I knew are, are dead and gone. They were the legends of Alcoholics Anonymous, the people that some of you have heard some of us speak of, the people that came before we did when we were young and AA. And, uh, they were legends, and they traveled this country worldwide and all through the country of the United States of America carrying the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't know, uh, anytime I stand up before a group of people in Alcoholics Anonymous, that uh, I've always said we just should take the time to remember the people that came before we did, because they are the people that gave us what we have today. And, I, you know, it just astonishes me sometimes to, to sit back and think about what they had to go through to give us what we have today. Now, years ago, they didn't have places like this to meet in because of the stigma of alcoholism. But, you know, today a lot of people want to get in this thing that don't have the problem. And uh, <laughs> there are other problems, but... Uh, and I've often reminded an old-timer, some of you knew him, Tom knew him and Wade knew him, and, and by the way, there's another lady here this afternoon that's been, and I'm going to talk about service this afternoon for a few minutes, but there's some people here that are dedicated in service, and one of the people here this afternoon is a lady that, that is a former delegate and a former state chairman, and she's a has-been, just like me. <laughs> and a lady I love dearly because I'm a sponsor. Edith, you stand up. This is Edith Campbell. And she saw us trying to do all this stuff Wade was talking about, and uh, she got interested. That, uh, but as I was saying before, I, uh, I'm always reminded when I get behind a podium and we give sobriety today to thank old Burton Crawford. Burton Crawford from East Texas, a man that used to travel the country and come to North Carolina, talk all over the country. And Burton died back in the... 70s, middle 70s, had 34 years of sobriety when he died. And you know, out in Texas, to give you sobriety dates, or they either shoot you if you don't give you sobriety dates. And, and Burton would stand up and he'd say, my name's Burton Crawford, and I've been sober ever since I can remember. Well, you know, when you think about it, that's about qualifies us all. We've been sober ever since we remember. And, uh, and that's the way I feel about it. And uh, today I'm gonna try to talk a little about service. And the only way I know how to talk about service is because of the experience that I've experienced in service. And I'm rather reluctant to do this because I've never done it from the podium, uh, 
blow by blow because I've been in a lot of service, and I don't mean it to be egotistical or braggadocious. It's not, meant that, it's not in that intent. But it'll give you the story of an alcoholic who came to this program not knowing what it was all about and got around a bunch of people that knew something about staying sober and then it was fortunate enough to be around some people that knew something about service. And as I said before, the people that came before we did. Uh, Bill summed it up in the very beginning and you have it right in your pamphlet. And it, it, it really the summation of the whole thing. And I quote from this, it says, an AA service is anything, whatever that helps reach a fellow suffering alcoholic, ranging all the way from the 12th step itself to a 10 cent phone call. Now it ain't 10 cent no more. <laughs> and a cup of coffee and AA General Service Office for national and international action service. I uh, done some studying and you know when service began in, in its true form, it really started with Dr. Bob and Bill. When they sat down and said, what we've got to do is carry this to somebody else. And after a brief period of time, they come to realize that because of what was going on, they had to provide this service for other people. And in the beginning, the service as we know it, in the early days of Alcoholics Anonymous after 1935 until approximately 1940, was brought about by old-timers in AA. Some of them were daddy rabbits, if you know what I mean. Old-timers that uh, carried the message from group to group, primarily out of New York at that time. And what happened is uh, Bill, through Dr. Bob's help and some other old-timers in AA. Now, old-timers then was three and four years of sobriety. And they had these people that were traveling the country, and they got groups' names or people in different communities that would go from city to city telling them about Alcoholics Anonymous. And so in the very beginning, the service was very limited. In 1940, there were a membership of about 2,000 people in Alcoholics Anonymous by that time. And of course, it was longer than this time also that Alcoholics Anonymous began to grow. And the more it grew, the more they realized that there had to be some service provided for all the people that were coming in Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, a lot of people in here tonight, uh, I mean this afternoon, uh, probably look at service about uh, what your GSR is and so forth, and, and you hear them speak about it and wish you'd sit down sometimes and we'd go on with the talk. I used to be the same way. Uh, the man that got hold of me and taught me about service that got me interested in service, and Tom knew him, Wade knew him, and Edith knew him, and Horst knew him, was a man in Raleigh who was one of the first 100 members of Alcoholics Anonymous. He was a native New Yorker, had married a lady in, in Raleigh, and lived in Raleigh, and uh, he was my second sponsor. I moved to Raleigh in 59, and I started going to the meetings over at the old Hayes Barton group. The man's name was Tom Burrell, and he was my second sponsor. And I got to go on with him to some of these conventions that were going on throughout the country because he was a speaker. And he had a lot of sobriety. Tom died in 1964 with 27 years of sobriety when he died. And I got to know some of the people in service work from the general service office by traveling with Tom to these conventions. And I got to know some of the legends, the women in the, uh, at the general service office like uh, Ann McFarland and Hazel Rice, those 
names that you probably, some of you never heard, but Eve Marsh, all those people, I got to know them in young sobriety when I really didn't know what they were doing. I was just traveling with him. And I can remember one night uh, in the Hayes Barton group, they had an announcement about sending money to the GSO, General Service Office in New York. And I made some smart remark about sending our money to New York, and it was a mistake that I shouldn't, it was something I shouldn't have said. Because after the meeting, uh, my second sponsor was one of these people, but uh, they had what I call a conference room over there. It was really an inventory room. They'd call you in. He'd call me in and sit me down. He stood up and talked down at you. And, uh, and he had a blue book in his hand. I'll never forget it. That's what we used to call it, the blue book, which was the old third legacy manual, they called it. And he said, I can't repeat the exact words he used because it wouldn't be appropriate from the podium. But what he said was this. Next time you criticize anything in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know something about it before you do it. Now take this damn book home and read it. And uh, I took the book home. And I read it. And I began to realize there was more behind this movement than I ever dreamed. I had no idea that what went on in Alcoholics Anonymous and the service capacity was what it was. And as I stand here today, this afternoon, after several years in sobriety and several years in service, it astonishes me to know where AA has come from, where it was when it began, and where it is today, and where it's going in the future. And it's something to think about as you sit here and and realize that, you know, uh, will this thing be here for your kid as it was for you? Will it be here for those that come behind us as it was for us? Well, if it is, it, it's because of the idea of service and providing to the people that need it. In 1940, as I said earlier, Bill and Dr. Bob came to the realization that they could not be the guardians of Alcoholics Anonymous. In other words, they were calling the shots. They were more or less the, well, there's no other way to say it. They were the leaders. They were telling people what to do and how to do it and when to do it. Everything was going to New York and AOA was growing, so they found out, they realized they had to do something. And that's when the idea of a, of maybe a conference came about. Now, some of you heard this word, the General Service Conference. And Bill thought about it. And it was agreed among the old-timers what we needed to do is get representation from all over the country. And uh, that was the idea of a general service conference as it was started in 1950. It was the first general service conference. And every one of the general service conferences has been held in New York City except one. And that was the one in 1955 that was held in St. Louis. And after the general service conference was set up in 1955 was when the General Service Board of Alcoholics came about when Bill and Dr. Bob turned over the guardianship of Alcoholics Anonymous to a general service board of trustees, the board of trustees of Alcoholics Anonymous as we know it today. And that was the beginning of the movement in Alcoholics Anonymous that I experienced later on, which I'll tell you about. It was about this time also that I began to grow in leaps and bounds because they got, got, got notice from the Saturday Evening Post article, the Cleveland Plain article, Reader's Digest had all Alcoholics Anonymous began to grow and needed services. And of course, that's 
the General Service Office was already in, the, in operation, but it began to grow. I uh, can recall that my early beginning uh, in service myself, and some of you know what I'm talking about, uh, I, uh, I moved to Raleigh in 1959. I was about two years sober. And that's when I met Tom, was in 1960, and Wade a year later. And, uh, and I'd met Tom previously in Raleigh, and then at Blackstone. Blackstone, I don't know if any of you ever heard of Blackstone not, but it's a retreat up in Virginia. But the first, first one I ever went to, under protest, they carried me. And, uh, <laughs> and, and that's when I met some more legend. Tom and I were talking before the meeting uh, tonight, some pe people that, that spoke from the podium and, and they talked about Alcoholics Anonymous and what it had done for him and where it was going. And there were pioneers in the as far as I was concerned. I mentioned the last name there, Tom Powers, Clarence Schneider. Oh, those old timers that went all over the country carrying the message. And it was at Blackstone my first time. I went at, uh, some of you know Freeman. Uh, Freeman Y. from Gibsonville and now lives in Danville. Freeman, Freeman was the shoeshine boy. And Freeman uh, and I, our first trip to Dix, uh, to, uh, Dix Hill, I started to say, uh, <laughs> God Almighty. <laughs> they provide a service there, too, in case you're interested. Uh, I know all about that one. But anyway, it was our first trip to, uh, to Blackstone, and, uh, and, and Blackstone then was before the building was renovated, and we were in a room with 40 men. It was a big room, double bunks, and Freeman came in AA three days before I did. And we've always been close buddies. We travel a lot in young sobriety. And I, that was the first time I met Freeman. And we were uh, getting ready to go to bed, and it was a guy from Maryland over down the bottom bunk, just snowing like hell. <laughs> just snowing there. You can imagine how it is with 40 men in there. And Freeman said, what are we going to do? <laughs> said, we've got to do something. And I said, well, I'll tell you what I've heard. And Freeman says, I'm going to try. And he did. What he did, he woke up the man, and he hauled off and kissed him right in the mouth. <laughs> and the man laid down. And we laid down and went to sleep. We got up and he was still sitting up, though. <laughs> and uh, as I think about it, he never came back to Blackstone anymore, I know. But what I'm trying to tell you is this the beginning of when I began to storm, form friendships of of people in Alcoholics Anonymous and when we travel the country, going to meetings and, and these things uh, as was related before. Now, in our home state of North Carolina, prior to 1969, there was no such thing as a general uh, as assembly as you know it today, the General Service Assembly. Prior to 1969 in the state of North Carolina, and uh, there was what was known as the area, the area committee. It was a state committee combined. Uh, it was 10 areas. Now, did we call them DCMs then, but they were called areas then. There were uh, 10 areas in the state, and you had a chairman, you had a delegate, and you had a secretary of treasurer was one of the area committeemen. And uh, for a long time in my early sobriety, uh, when I was a GSR appointed in 63 in the old Hayes-Barton group, I didn't know what a GSR was. They just said, you're the GSR. And uh, that's all it was, just a GSR. Uh, I didn't have any duties. There were no duties to do. 
because there was nothing forthcoming from uh, anything higher up. The state committee, so I understood later, met once or twice a year somewhere in the state. Uh, some of us called it the CIA of Alcoholics Anonymous, and <laughs> that's about what it was then. Uh, and uh, unbeknownst to me, again, I was elected GSR in 1963. And this is when Tom got into me about uh, reading the manual and knowing something about it. And I began to ask a lot of questions, and it wasn't long before the following year in 65, I was elected as an area committeeman from District 5. District 5 in that time went all the way from <laughs> Alamance County down to Wilson County and all the way to the Virginia line down to Johnson County. And uh, it was a pretty big area. I went to my first committee meeting in Lake John, Alaska. In 1965, the committee met when they had a state convention. And the state convention was held in 1965 in Lake John, Alaska. Uh, we had a committee meeting. Uh, some of you, the, the picture that Wade had up here earlier had four men in it. Wade Johnson, Woolett Pegg, myself, and Zeb Mooney. Zeb lives down at Newport. He's a past delegate. Uh, and at that meeting, uh, there was concern about the primary concern was where the convention was going to be held next year and who was going to be the next delegate. And they just appointed one. They just said, you're going to be the delegate. And so Mac was the delegate. The Secretary of the Treasury got upset. She got mad and she left. She resigned because she wasn't elected delegate. And uh, then they had to elect the Secretary of Treasury from one of the area committeemen. And Zeb Mooney says, I, I nominate Dave Cook. One of the, the delegates, that past delegate, says, well, that's not what I had in mind. <laughs> and uh, Zeb said, I can't repeat what Zeb said, but uh, <laughs> he explained that that's what he had in mind. And, uh, and so I was elected state treasurer, and uh, this was the beginning of my life in Alcoholics Anonymous and Service, as I know it, because uh, not only did I serve as an area committeeman, I served also in the capacity of Secretary of Treasury. And we had a lot to happen in that first year that I was on the committee. Really what happened is uh, now there's a formal way of doing things. Back then, uh, as I said, the committee just met when it wanted to and so forth. And, and I remember the primary discussion at this meeting was where was the convention going to be held. And the general way it was done then, well, they said, well, the East would take it one year, the West the next. Well, since we had it in the West, it was going to the East the next year. One man from Sanford spoke up, and some of you know who he was, says, we'll take it. And hell, he didn't even know what a convention was, but he said, I'm going to take it. And sure enough, he did take it and said, uh, and then he appointed a man from Federal to have it. And later on, uh, the following February, we got a notice in the mail. The next state convention was going to be held at the Grove Park Inn in Asheville, North Carolina, on July the 4th weekend. The same weekend as the International Convention. It was going to start on Saturday and end on Tuesday. Now, you know something's kind of wrong if you begin one on Saturday and end on Tuesday. <laughs> and this man had, uh, well, he had uh, swung a deal with the hotel up there to put in Pepsi-Colas. And, uh, so that's where, the, now the Grove Park Inn, I don't know if you know what the Grove Park Inn is now. It'd probably go for about $150 a night. 
And uh, we couldn't even get in the front door at that time. We wanted to, uh, for that rate. Come in, have a seat. So uh, what we did, uh, they, they called a meeting, an emergency meeting of the state committee, and as Wade alluded to earlier, it was held in Greensboro uh, on a Sunday, snowing like the devil, and I had to put chains on the car to get up there, and my wife says, you're crazy, and, but you know me, stark, raving sober, you're going to do this, you're going to provide service. And so I go to Greensboro, and we had that big meeting in the sky up there where they, for the first time the, the state committee took over the convention as it was and told the man that the committee would just take it over. And, uh, and I remember uh, they made some announcements that, Dave, go back to Durham and do this and do that. You go ahead and make the arrangements. Well, I didn't know what they were talking about until I was halfway home, found out that they dropped it in my lap. And uh, that was the beginning of the convention business. I know it. But what happened after that was, in, in regard to service, was really the thing I'd like to talk about because I and a few more young people had begun to read this blue book. And we knew there were things going on in other states that were not going on in North Carolina. And so uh, in 1967, I was elected the delegate to serve in New York for two years. And of course, I got more on hand then, and that's when I found out about about the inner workings of the conference and things that I'd never experienced before in my life. And I'd made some trips to some other states where they had a state assemblies and began to see some things that were going on. And, I, and the only way that I could see this thing was going to come off was get some of the old-timers on the committee interested in it and to pull it off. Because it was my belief that where the, where the, where the interest needed to be was from the roots down in AA, that's the GSRs, they should be the ones bringing forth the the business at hand started coming from the top down. And so uh, in the beginning, we had to purge some people off the committee. Uh, we kicked them off. Uh, if they couldn't come to the meetings, we just said, if you're not here for two meetings, you're gone. And we had some that couldn't come. They didn't have the time, so we replaced them. And in 1969, we had our first assembly. And the only way this was accomplished by convincing some old-timers on the committee that this is the way it had to be done. And with Wade's help, Willard's help, and Zeb's help, and a few people that knew a little about service, we were able to pull it off. And in November of 1969, we had our first state assembly in Durham at the old, uh, well, it changed hotel so many times, Jack Tall, Washington Duke, ever what it was, for the first time. And we had 75% of the groups registered at that first meeting, first assembly. And, of course, we did a little promoting. What we did is we had a good AA speaker to come in and speak on Saturday night. You know, they'll come for that. And, uh, and then we walked on eggshells and had an agenda plan, and, and they seemed to be interested in it. And this was beginning of the assemblies that we know them today, and they voted then to have the assemblies for two more years. And this is the beginning of the assemblies as we know it today. And this was a thing that should have probably should have been done years later, I mean years earlier. Because of the fact that we started our assembly and had some structure in it, several states, neighboring states, uh, patterned their assemblies after ours. I went to Indiana, I went to West Virginia, Virginia, and two more states in the period of about two years telling them about what was going on in North Carolina. And, and it began to grow. It's grown into what it is today. And all of you know about that that's interesting for 
served in that capacity. But as I look back now, uh, at the same time, I still had responsibility of going to a home group and being part of a home group. I still had things to do, and that's, that's the reason I uh, have been so involved in it over the years because I've seen how much can go on in a home group when you have adequate service. I've served in all the capacities of service can be, and now I'm just a has-been. In other words, I, I started out as a GSR, lady on the state committee, laid on as the delegate, and then in 1974, the experience came to me that uh, was really a complete shock when I was elected a trustee to the General Service Board of Alcoholics Anonymous for Southeastern United States. I was elected from the Southeastern United States which comprised of 13 states in, in Puerto Rico. And this is an experience that I could never, I could never tell anybody or explain to anybody what it was like except to it. Well, I had the experience it to believe it. And uh, in that time, uh, in the time that I was on the General Service Board of Alcoholics Anonymous, I had the experience of being in 38 states, Puerto Rico, and all the provinces of Canada during my term, doing service work. And then the great thing that I've recognized over the years, and the thing that I re remember the most, is the dedication of the Class A trustees. Now, there are two types of trustees, and maybe they knew what they were doing when they set them up, when they first set up the first conference. There's the Class A trustee and the Class B trustee. And I will co-founders and all their wisdom made the alcoholic the class B trustee and the non-alcoholic the class A trustee. There are seven, there are 21 trustees, there are seven non-AA trustees, and there are 14 AA trustees. Eight of them are regional, four of them are general service and two at large from Canada and the United States. The dedication, the thing that impressed me the most that I was on the board was the dedication of the non-alcoholic trustee. I couldn't imagine that men, I mean prominent men, gave of their own free time to come to these meetings, be a part of the conference and all these committee meetings dedicated to the movement of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they didn't receive a penny for it, not a cent. And these were men of renowned reputation. Uh, Austin McComb. Dr. John Nard, some of you knew him. We've had him speak down here several times. People of this, this credibility that believed in what Alcoholics Anonymous was doing and what it could do for the mankind. And I'll never forget their dedication. Also, uh, if you, when you start talking about services, there's probably some areas of Alcoholics Anonymous and service that uh, is mit are misunderstood. And I can probably name them, and you'll probably agree with me. One of them is the General Service Office, AAWS. AAWS is Alcoholics Anonymous World Services. And that's the outfit, that's the business operation of the office that does all the printing and so forth. Then there's the AA Grapevine. That's another corporate board. And then the General Service, and then the General Service Trustees themselves. These are, these are areas that, you know, sometimes in my, in my beginning, I didn't understand it either. But all of these things go into the makeup of service as we know it worldwide today. Because of what's happened in our movement, in Alcoholics Anonymous and Service, it has gone worldwide. And, uh, of course, uh, in, this, in our country, 
The service at our General Service Conference is represented by the United States and Canada. And you know, what happens is about 90 delegates, there's about 90 of them, along with the General Service Board, the staff members, AAWS directors, and members of the corporate AA grapevine to get together at the General Service Congress to be the guardians of Alcoholics Anonymous and provide the services we know them today and where the movement is going. Also, as a result of our services, is a worldwide service now in foreign countries. And I won't get into that because uh, we've got enough to do at home, I guess. In all the time that I was uh, active in service, and I still am, as far as I'm concerned, I'm still involved in service. Because If you do these things that we spoke of in the beginning, if you make a telephone call, if you go there to the group and do the things that they ask of you and setting up for the meeting, these are services of Alcoholics Anonymous, and these are the things we need to do and should do. I uh, also have had the opportunity to serve on AAWS for two years as a director. Now, as I said before, that's Alcoholics Anonymous World Service Incorporated. I had to be in New York every third Thursday of every month for a meeting. And uh, a lot of people say, well, how in the world did you do that? Well, I did it because I had a boss that understood what I was trying to do and uh, backed me 100%. And uh, I could get to the office quicker than some people that worked at the office. I'm about 20 minutes from the airport. I'd go in New York on the afternoon to have the meetings at night. I'd catch a 7 o'clock flight out of LaGuardia, and I'd be at my desk at 8.30 in the morning back in Raleigh. So I didn't miss much time. But in all the experiences that I had in the conferences and meeting people from all over the world, and I happened to send a World Service meeting, too, while I was on the board, the, 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 you've just got to remember or, or just imagine, just imagine how it used to be and where it is today. And, you know, I've heard some old-timers out in Texas talk about the way they used to carry the message. I've heard Dr. Will Miller and Bish Mathis and Burton Crawford on conversation talk about, now Bish lived in Goldport, Mississippi, Will Miller lived in Corsicana, and Burton lived in Kilgore. And they would meet in Dallas, Texas on a particular day to make a two-day drive to El Paso, Texas to call on a drunk. And that's the way it used to be. And sometimes we think, you know, that wonder if he can wait after breakfast or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> it makes you think. It makes you think. I was in Corpus Christi one afternoon at a convention, and I had a, I had a call from Burton Crawford, who was in El Paso, with a young man that he wanted me to meet. This was early in the morning that he called me on Saturday morning from El Paso. He says, are you going to be up late tonight? Well, hell, I already knew what that meant, be up. <laughs> And sure enough, he drove all day to bring a young man to sit down and just talk for a few minutes at midnight the following night about Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, you call that service? I call it service. You look around the room and remember how you got here and think about how you got here. How many people have provided some kind of service for you to be here or your group? You know, groups just don't happen. These conventions don't happen. These things just don't happen. Somebody does the work. And usually the people who do the work are the ones that are criticized. Have you ever noticed that? Huh? 
I've noticed it. Uh, <laughs> but that's part of that's the name of the game. Uh, I uh, I I really I've often thought, you know, you know, it's been said in the past that don't get too many people in service, you might overdo it. If everybody was in service. And uh, probably everybody should be in service, but whether you know it or not, if you're an active AA member and you make a telephone call or you do some work at this meeting today or you provide a service for a suffering alcoholic, whether it's been sober 30 years or one day, you're providing services. And that's God-given as far as I'm concerned. And uh, I, uh, I just wish that uh, everybody that... Uh, and knocks everything in service like I did when I first got sober, when I didn't really know nothing about it. But just take the time and realize how it all got here and where it's going today. If you really want to know what, if, you, if you're unacquainted with what it is in Alcoholics Anonymous about service, ask your GSR and the group to give you a service manual sometimes. And, uh, you know, you hear the question, are there any leaders in Alcoholics Anonymous? And we used to say, no, they're not. But Bill says, yes, they are. Yes, there are leaders. They are people that uh, provide these services, that do these things for no, no fee involved whatsoever, just because they want to do it to help a suffering alcoholic. And that's what it's all about. Now, I don't know how long I've talked, and, uh, and I'll get to rambling in and on about service and telling some things they shouldn't tell. And, uh, but... Uh, Maybe somebody's got a question you want to ask. Uh, I can tell you this, that uh, in my travels in Alcoholics Anonymous, and Tom's been all over the country too, uh, we are very fortunate in this state, this state to, to have the, the capacity of service that we do have and, and the people involved in Alcoholics Anonymous and the program as we know it. You know, about years ago, we used to hang a banner up in the Midwinter Conference it says, uh, you are now in big book country. <laughs> and we still got that banner, and I want to see it flying some more because that's what it's about. It's big book country. And people, you know, I'm astonished at some people, I, some places I go, uh, and I'm not knocking treatment centers, don't get me wrong. I've been in some areas of the country where that's all they talk about is treatment. People that are young in the program, and I understand it. But where I come from, we talk about the big book. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the big book is the service that we provide to everybody. Now, who almost, uh, who's the chairman? Where is she? Come on up here, and we'll feel any questions. Uh, oh, hell, he's got one already. She. Tom brought up uh, the first one was very legitimate. The second one, I'll do the best I can. But anyway, uh, the general uh, the staff at the General Service Office is comprised of people that they're probably, uh, as I rely, if I'm not mistaken, there's probably 125, 130 employees there at the office right now. But there's not about, about 10 of my members of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the staff and the general manager and the people in key positions uh, that provide services for AA that have the experience. The rest of them are paid employees. Of course, the staff are paid employees, too. Uh, these people are, the staff members are people that does all the correspondence that groups from all over the country write into about wanting to know answers, wanting an answer right then. 
and uh, and uh, they uh, have different capacities. Uh, some of them in uh, international, some of them in uh, represent different regions, southeast, northeast, west coast, and so forth. And they rotate in their service capacities every year, and uh, in some other area. These people are usually people that are. Uh, are interested in the job there because of the past of working in a group or some capacity in service work that uh, apply for a job and they're interviewed and their background is checked into and they go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And the people that have the capacity to deal with other people and have a knowledge of correspondence and how to deal with people. Also how to speak in a public forum because of the general staff members travel all over the country to different conventions and conferences representing the office, general service office. And uh, you will find that uh, in the years that since I was on the board, there are still two there that were there when I was there. That was Sarah and Susan. And, of course, now they have men on the in staff assignments. And it has been uh, expanded somewhat because now we have an archives department and, uh, and then the, the general service manager is a man that's a hired about every 10 years now, and uh, the, the staff are an important part of the link between the groups and the office as far as correspondence and what's going on in your area, the grassroots. And we've been very fortunate in having staff members uh, to service in the capacity that they have. They are dedicated people. Uh, I, I, I think of some of them in the uh, they, they were above dedication. Uh, Hazel Rice. Hazel Rice was a woman that uh, traveled this world, uh, this country, uh, because of Bill and his interest in me in the early years. Eve Marsh. Eve Marsh, a lot of you in here knew her. Eve was the uh, staff member that handled me when I was a delegate. And uh, Hazel was the woman in the office that knew me when I was young in sobriety because of Tom, and uh, when I got to New York as a delegate, unbeknownst to me, she had arranged a two-hour conference with Bill Wilson for me to sit down and talk to Bill eyeball to eyeball. And, uh, of course, it was something else I'll never forget, but he'll bum your cigarettes. I found out that, too. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but... Uh, I'll never forget that meeting. It was just like sitting down and talking away to Tom. I mean, it was eyeball to eyeball AA, and we talked. And, and now Tom and, and Bill didn't agree on everything. At one time, talking about structure, at one time, Bill had the idea that maybe we needed to set up a president of Alcoholics Anonymous. This is the truth. It was a movement to set up some individual, because see, he was, he was the individual after Dr. Bob died. He was the man up front, and it was his idea to maybe have a man in AA to be the up front man, and more or less the president. And there was uh, some of the old timers, just like they did when they're writing a book, you know, they got upset and told him what to do, and about when he wanted to do treatment work and all that, they got hold of him and said, no, you can't do that. And it was a big movement, but it was shot down. And Tom was one of them involved in that because I've got some of that correspondence. When Tom died, he left me all his AA possessions he had. I have about 15 books of AA, every edition, 
Everyone I'm going to inscribe by Bill Wilson and Lois. When A.E. Comes of Age was first printed, we got the first, one of the first copies of that. They always sent him a book of every print. And I've got all those. Then I've got all the correspondence he had back when uh, they were arguing this deal. And it was right. They got at each other. They really did. But I'll never forget the experience of Bill, and I'll never forget what he told me that day. He said, when you get over to the House, which was Stepping Stones, every other year the delegates, as well as the Al-Anon members, went to Stepping Stones to see the place where Bill lived and tour it. And this was the year they were supposed to go. And he said, when you get to Stepping Stones, I'll show you a picture of Tom. He was a dashing young man. Well, five days later, I go to Stepping Stones, and I walk in Bill's house, and he calls my name. Now, you know, that gave me another year of sobriety right there when he called my name. <laughs> and and I, I can imagine, and he showed me a picture of Tom, and he was a dashing young man when he was young and sobriety. Tom is the one in the AA Comes of Age where Bill wrote that night at the 24th Street Group when they were running out of money for coal, and Tom was taking up the collection, and Bill put in a quarter. And Tom called his hand and said, we need to buy some more coal. And that's when he spoke of maybe we need to put in a little bit more. And Tom was the man who was quoted in the book of doing that. He called his hand at that meeting. They were just like you and I. That's all it was. But uh, Bill was a, was a man that, uh, well, he was just one of us. Now, going back to the, uh, the restructuring. Uh, uh, when you say the restructuring, you mean the board and so forth? Uh, I'm going to do like a, <laughs> you know, when I was a general service trustee and when I was on the board of Alcoholics Anonymous, I knew when I went to, I was invited to many assemblies where with people to ask you questions right off the, and want to put you, you know, give a load of questions of what they were, which that was, and, uh, and, uh, and I realized then that I got some early experience from another old time. He says, when you, you got to remember something. When you stand up, and you give an answer. Remember one thing. You're speaking of Alcoholics Anonymous as a whole when you're a trustee. Well, I'm a has-been, and I'm a no longer trustee. I think, seriously, that we need to study restructuring because the growth of Alcoholics Anonymous, the way it's coming about, uh, I perceive that in, in, not in my lifetime, but in your kid's lifetime, that Alcoholics Anonymous will be so big that well, the General Service Office is about reaching capacity now, as I know. I just can't understand how we can go along without. I envision, like Bill did years ago, that in the future you will find that there will be regional offices. I really do. And I think it's going to come. It's got to. For instance, you go to the International Convention now, and you know that's, you're lucky if you can get down the street anymore. And in time to come, I don't believe you'll be able to, I think there'll be regional conventions because they're getting so big that you just can't move 60 or 75,000 people around in a city for meetings. And uh, you know how we are. By God, we're going to meet, and, uh, and we're going to do it. And uh, uh, at San Diego this past year, uh, uh, it was a wonderful place for a convention. Downtown area was fine, but... That trip out to Southern California <laughs> to that stadium was another thing. But uh, I, I, I'm, Tom, to answer your question, I think restructuring needs to be studied carefully 
and I think it's coming, and I think it should be done. As long as, as, long as we don't overstructure. All right, how's that? Yeah, good. You're on next. You have a question? How many members are actually in Alcoholics Anonymous? <clears throat> How many members are actually in Alcoholics Anonymous? Let me put it to you this way. Anybody that goes to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and sits down and says they're a member are a member. Uh, you know, over the years, uh, it says that we've got to have two-thirds of the majority of the membership to change anything in the big book if it's ever re rewritten. Well, we'll never have to worry about it because <laughs> nobody can get an accurate count. Uh, uh, the alcoholic counts. Uh, we in AA count rather strangely anyway. Uh, <laughs> years ago, you know, when we had uh, prepaid conventions, uh, we used to go to a convention in South Carolina. They'd say, how many did you have? Well, we had 920 down here. You go to Virginia two weeks later, how many did y'all? Well, we had 1025. <laughs> it gets bigger and bigger. That's what I call an alcoholic count. Uh, the count I always go by is how many paid. <laughs> but uh, to answer your question, there's, there's estimates, and that's all they are. I don't even know what the figure is now, but uh, you think in 1940, in 1940, they had a handle on it then. It was just 2,000 numbers. And uh, my God, they sold more big books now than... I forgot what the last count is. Anybody know? Uh, I started figuring not long ago. There's over three million and some, if I remember. Big books been sold, so uh, there's no count that I know. I don't even know what to call the count now. When I was on the board, they estimated around two and a half million, and um, nobody really knows. You can't even count them in your group. Uh, I can count them when they pass the hat. I know how many contribute. Uh. Any more questions? How many, how many Class A and Class yeah. B trustees are there actually? There are seven Class A trustees and 14 AA trustees. Now, when, when this was set up, Bill wanted more alcoholic trustees than none. Uh, he, wanted, he wanted more Class A trustees. Wait a minute. He wanted more drunks to be, he wanted drunks to be running the board. And uh, what happened was they came to the conclusion that they needed, they needed these non-AA trustees to keep some semblance of the alcoholic and his ego at level that they could keep it on a check. And you think about it sometimes. You know, I've always said all we really do is survive among individual egos. That's all we do in a meeting. But uh, that's the reason there's seven non-AAs and 14 AA trustees. you would be amazed at the dedication of these seven men or seven people. They come from all over the country. Uh, yes, sir. Oh, this. At GSA. The staff members, yes, they are paid a salary. They are paid a salary, and they do a job, and they should be paid. This is when you read through the traditions, you understand why the tradition is written the way it is. They pay their employees. We have to have them. Uh, now, in the early history, when it began, uh, 
they took advantage of people in the New York area that had certain talents or expertise and used them and gave them nothing. But they came to the conclusion that in time they had to have paid employees to do these jobs. Yes. He said, do speakers that come to conventions and assemblies and large gatherings like this receive payment for services? Well, all I got was a barbecue dinner today. Uh, <laughs> And it, and it was a good one, I'll tell you that. Uh, to answer your question, this general, the general rule of thumb is, for instance, if you invite a speaker, say if we have a speaker to come to the Midwinter Conference or the State Convention, their expenses are paid. That's the travel expenses, their food and their lodging, and that's all. There's no honorarium in it. The same thing is true uh, that when Tom or I go somewhere to speak out the country, they take care of our expenses, and that's all. We have some that want more, I understand, but... Uh, but I haven't got into that yet. Uh. Okay. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. And listen, uh, remember when you go back to your group that whether you know it or not, that's the most important possession you have in your sobriety is a love of a home group. Don't you ever forget it. Because right there is where you can go when you can't go nowhere else and people understand you. So you hang on that home group. Thank you. Thank you, Dave, for being here. That was really wonderful. I've learned a lot today. Y'all, please take the op use this opportunity today to talk to these speakers because it's a real blessing to have them here, and it's a lot to learn from these men. Um, and those that will, we're going to take about a 20-minute break between this speaker and the next one. But let's close this meeting with uh, the Lord's Prayer.